All right. Good morning, church family. How was everyone doing this morning? Good? All right. I love it. The few, the faithful, the strong, getting out in the rain. You know, when I moved here in 2009, I realized one thing. San Diegans don't know how to get drive in the rain. And uh, anyway, it's good to see you this morning. I know it's pouring um, outside quite a bit this morning, but so good that you came this morning. And uh, we're going to dig into the message this morning. Um, Real quick introduction. Next week, I'm going to be gone. I'm actually going to be officiating a, a memorial service back in Kansas City. The chairman of the search committee that brought myself and my family to San Diego uh, Martin Stoops, his wife, Barbara, passed away. And uh, so they're very close to us. So we're going to be going back there and spend, to spend a few days with them. Uh, Pastor Carlos uh, preached for me uh, some time ago on a Sunday morning. And God has brought Carlos and his wife, Teresa, to our church. Um, they started coming several months ago. He's a, a pastor. He's been a pastor for like 27 years. So he's going to be preaching for me um, next Sunday. Looking forward to uh, having him continue our series in the Gospel of John. He's going to finish us off um, the last passage in John chapter 3. So looking forward to it. I want to encourage you to be here. Bring a friend. It's going to be great. And uh, so appreciate just... Uh, Man, his, his love for the church, the gospel, and uh, teaching God's word. All right, here we go. You guys ready? Pull out your message notes, and uh, we're going to dive right into it this morning. We are in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Honestly, I really didn't have the time last week to cover these verses, and I really should have. They really go with the previous passage. So today I'm going to kind of do a a quick flyover, kind of a recap last week, and to get us to to verse 16, kind of set the stage because this goes with the previous passage. So here we go, John 3, verses 16 to 21. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Nicodemus doesn't make a a real big splash onto the pages of Scripture. He's really only mentioned a few times. Uh, Virtually nothing is known about this man. One thing we know, uh, we talked about it last week, he's a high-ranking Pharisee. He's a a ruler of the Jews, which means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of a, of a, a very strict sect of Judaism called Pharisees. And the Pharisees prided themselves on keeping the law and obeying a plethora of oral traditions that were passed down alongside the law of God. The Pharisees were religious, but they didn't know God. They placed a lot of great, a lot of emphasis on works righteousness. It was all about the outward. It was all about the external appearance. It wasn't about having 
a heart for God. They were far away from God. They claimed to know God, but they really didn't know God in terms of a relationship. They were just religious. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. We looked at the story last week, and, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, Nicodemus recognized that Jesus had come from God, that maybe Jesus was a prophet, but he failed to recognize that Jesus was God, that he was the son of God. And then in the conversation, Jesus drops a bombshell on Nicodemus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The, the phrase born again means to be born from above. When, when you encounter Christ, when, when, when your heart is captured by the gospel, and you see Christ in all his glory, and you see your sinfulness, and you place your faith in Christ, God imparts spiritual life to you. He transforms you. He initiates the saving faith in your work. He's the one that brings conviction. He's the one that, that, that guides you to a point of saving faith. And in that moment when you turn to Christ, an explosion of faith happens. You become a new person. A new person because of your faith in him. Jesus' statement to Nicodemus, this religious guy, about being born again, sent Nicodemus into a tailspin. Nicodemus had no pharisaical theological training or categories to really understand and, and unpack the born again concept. And so Jesus goes on and he explains, hey, Nicodemus, you gotta be born physically, flesh, flesh of flesh, and then spiritually born of the spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. Let's pick up in verses seven and eight. Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus is the master communicator. He's the master of illustrations. Like Jesus took things that the ordinary common people understood and he used those common things to illustrate things that we didn't understand. So in the conversation with Nicodemus, he's talking about physical birth. But he's using physical birth to illustrate that you can be a new person. You can have this new life in Christ, in me. He talks about you can't see the wind, but the wind is an illustration of the effect of salvation. When God moves in the life and heart of someone. And then Jesus brings Nicodemus to this point, this climax of the, of the story, I, I, not so much climax, but really I think it's a pivotal, um, a pivotal moment where Jesus shares some, some deep, profound truth about an Old Testament story that ultimately points to him. And he, he looks at Nicodemus, verses 14 and 15. And I just wonder, at this moment, if Nicodemus was just leaning in, Maybe Jesus was whispering. Maybe he just, he, he lowered his tone. And, and Nicodemus was hanging on every word. Notice what Jesus said. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's what Jesus does. Okay, so we know the Bible's all about Jesus, right? Old Testament's about him. New Testament is about him. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about him. Every chapter, every story, every verse, every truth ultimately points to Jesus. He's the hero 
of every story. He is the central figure of redemptive history. So Jesus, what he does, he opens the Old Testament. And as he's opening the Old Testament, I think he's opening the mind of Nicodemus. And he teaches Nicodemus this profound, deep, awesome New Testament truth about being born again and about the cross. Jesus takes Nicodemus to Numbers 21. Now, Nicodemus, being a rabbi, religious guy, spiritual leader, he's familiar with Numbers 21. Like, like he's like, yeah, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. Okay, yeah, Numbers 21, okay, yeah. Bronze serpent, right, fiery serpents. So here's kind of, here's what we talked about last week, and I'm just gonna just share it in a nutshell, right? Nation of Israel traveling to the promised land, edge of the promised land. They start complaining. God judges them. What does he do? He sends fiery serpents. The word fiery actually conveys the idea of these are poisonous snakes. So God sends judgment upon the people because they're complaining. And when the people were bit by the fiery serpents, like it would literally burn them, right? It would would sear their flesh. God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fashion. I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it on a pole and lift the pole high up in the camp. And if anyone is bitten by a snake, if they go to the pole, if they look upon the bronze serpent, they will be healed. Nicodemus knows that story. He could probably maybe even recite like the whole story based off memory possibly. Jesus then turns the tables on Nicodemus and he he looks at Nicodemus and he says, hey Nicodemus, in the same way, the son of man must be lifted up. Now I think in this moment, Nicodemus probably didn't understand because it was a veiled reference to the cross. Numbers chapter 21, here's what's taking place. The people are being threatened by death as a punishment for their sins, but here's the awesome, glorious news, the the greatness of the story. God extends mercy. God steps in, even though he's a just God, he's a merciful God. So he's just, right? He's just in sending the fiery serpents. He's just in judging his people, but he's also merciful, and he's gracious, and he's kind, and, and, uh, and, and he extends this mercy towards his people. So he tells Moses, if the people look at the bronze serpent, they'll be healed. Their destiny was determined by their response. The pole, there was nothing powerful about the pole. It was about looking up. And looking up represents faith in God, right? God wasn't saying, I want you to do good works. I want self-effort. No, he, he calls his people to look up. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, like you remember Numbers 21? Remember as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. And I think that's the key word. The key word must the, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The cross of Christ is a necessity. Here's the deal. We're not bitten by snakes, but we're infected with sin. And sin leads to death, spiritual death, separation from God. And the cross is the only way to deal with our past. 
You can't deal with your past by turning over a new leaf, by reforming your life, by, you know, um, some sort of, you know, um, Catholic penance, you know, going to a priest. No, this is, you, you allow the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for you to deal with your past. Only the cross, only the cross can deal with your sin. Your mama can't deal with your sin. Your spouse can't deal with the sin. Well, they deal with it a lot, but they can't, they can't cover that sin, right? <laughs> Only Jesus can cover it. This is, what, this is what the word atonement means, a covering. His atonement, his sacrifice on the cross was an, was an atoning work for you. It was a covering. He covers your sin. And this is why God sent Jesus into the brokenness of our world. Now, I want you to look. So that's the context. This is what Jesus just got done telling Nicodemus. Just like Moses, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's saying, listen, the serpent in the wilderness is me. I'm going to be lifted up. And if I'm lifted up on the cross and people look to me, if people place their faith in me, they'll be healed spiritually. And then notice the next verse. John 3.16. Notice the first word. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're taking notes, here's point number one. God sent his son, Jesus, out of love. Out of love. John 3.16 is one of the most well-known, probably most memorized verses in all of the Bible. I like what Martin Luther he, he says John 3, 16 is the gospel in miniature. I love that. It's the gospel in miniature, right? It's the gospel in a nutshell. Like if you want to know what the gospel, which simply means good news, look at John three sixteen, right? It is one single verse that paints this beautiful masterpiece of the greatness of God's love for sinners. And, but I want you to see the context of it. I want you to see the context of it. It gives the motive for why Jesus was sent. It gives the motive for why he was sent. What is the motive? What's the ground? For God so loved the world. The motive for Christ coming to our world, he came out of love. Jesus was sent the hero of heaven, the champion of grace, the sinless savior. He came from heaven and he penetrated the lostness and the brokenness of our world. Why? Because of the Father's love. Because this is how much God loves humanity. He was willing to crush his son with our sin. The debt we owed God, Jesus took upon. The punishment we deserved, he took the punishment. He absorbed that, right? He, he, he nailed the debt of sin to the cross forever. God did not put a snake on the pole. He put his son on the pole. Some people say, well, this is cosmic child abuse. How could God the Father 
crush his son under the weight of our iniquity and our transgression and our sin because it was always God's plan to crush his son. From eternity past, it was always God's plan. There was an, 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 an eternal agreement. I don't understand it completely, but there was an agreement between the father and the son that the son would be sent, that the son would be obedient, and that the son would give his life for the sins of the world. There was an agreement there. But don't forget about his humanity. Hours before the crucifixion, hours before he would endure the agony for you, he experienced the horrors of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was sweating blood, blood, drops of blood. He was experiencing the, the physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual pain of the cross. It's almost like Jesus was crucified twice. You want to know how much God loves you? You look at the cross. See, in the New Testament time, the cross was a, a symbol of treason. It was a symbol of um, treason against the Roman government. Right? It, it was a symbol of um, you know, suffering. But today, because of Jesus and the resurrection, the cross is a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of grace. It's a symbol of mercy. And there at the cross, justice and mercy mingled. God's justice was satisfied because our sin was paid for in a perfect sacrifice. Grace shows up and extends that sacrifice to us, which we do not deserve. I love what Dallas Willard says. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish that which he cannot accomplish on our own. That which we cannot accomplish on our own. That's what grace is. God acting, God initiating, God doing, right? It's not us, it's him. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So these are the words of Jesus to Nicodemus. If you have a red letter edition Bible, the whole passage is Jesus' words. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Point number two, faith in Jesus removes all condemnation. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because we're already condemned. This is what Jesus is saying. He didn't come to condemn because we're already condemned. Every single one of us, we stand condemned, guilty, because we've all sinned. And so this is why it's a rescue mission. He came to die on a cross. And it's a matter of God's grace. You know, the Bible says that we're, we're saved by faith in Christ and, and by, by his grace. Grace is unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. I like to say it this way. Grace is something that God gives to us that we don't deserve. God doesn't give paychecks. A paycheck is what you deserve. If you go work at a job and there's a contract, they, they need to pay you. The, the wage or the salary based on the contract. That's a paycheck. That's what you deserve. But when it comes to salvation, God doesn't dole out paychecks. He doles out grace. And you, you can't earn it. I mean, this is, I think this is the, the hardest, I think this is the biggest hurdle for most people that don't know Jesus. They're like, what? You mean to tell me that 
I can be forgiven of all of my sins based on the grace of God. I mean, it's, I, I, don't, I'm not, I, I don't have to work for it. I don't have to somehow earn God's love. Correct. It's based on the finished, accomplished work of Christ on the cross for you. There's an old Arabian story that talks about a man riding a donkey. And uh, as he's riding his donkey, he sees something in the road. And, and he stops. He, he gets off the donkey. And, and in the middle of the road, he sees this little bird. And this little bird is laying on its back with his scrawny legs up in the air. And the man asks the bird, what are you doing? The little bird says, there's a rumor that heaven is going to fall and I'm going to hold it up. And the man says, that is absurd. That is completely ridiculous. If heaven falls, you can't hold it up. And the bird said, one does the best one can. That's humanity. That is humanity in a nutshell. One does the best one can. But here's the problem with that. It's not good enough. It's not good enough, right? It's just not good enough. Doing your best isn't good enough, right? Look at verse 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. So this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. This is the judgment. The light, speaking of himself, the light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Least his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's point number three. Rejection of the gospel reveals one's selfish desires. Or you could put it this way. Rejection of the gospel reveals the condition of man's heart right? John tells us that Jesus is the light. This light has come into the world. John tells us the light in in chapter one, I don't have the reference for you, but if you remember, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love the darkness more than the light. People don't come to the light because the light will expose them. This is what light does. It exposes darkness. Until you see yourself as a sinner, you will not see your need for a Savior. The Bible puts a spotlight on our depravity. When we come to terms with our our nature, that we're sinners, that we're broken, that we need to be fixed, then we'll look up and we'll put our eyes on Jesus for spiritual healing. There was a pastor and author by the name of James Bryan Smith. In his book, The Good and Beautiful God, he paints this dilemma of followers of Jesus that profess Christ and live for him, but yet live defeated lives, trapped in sin cycles and addiction and riddled with anxiety and depression. And the picture that James paints is the picture of a caterpillar that's morphed into this butterfly. But the butterfly keeps living like the caterpillar. The caterpillar, right, this butterfly is this new creation, these beautiful wings, the ability to fly and be free, and yet its wings are closed, staying there on the twig, just inching along. See, there's a, there's a lot of believers, right? They, they've moved from death to life. They've become new creatures, right? 
You went from a caterpillar to a butterfly. You've been set free. You're a new creation, no condemnation, but yet you're still sucked into the darkness. You know, Jesus is, is very honest. People love the darkness more than the light. Why? Because of their deeds. You know, the Bible says that sin, two things about sin. Number one, it's wrong. Duh. Number two, sin is temporal. But you know what? Sometimes temporal sin can be satisfying. People enjoy sin for a season. They enjoy sin until consequences are factored into the equation. Because here's the deal. Sin always leads to consequences. And when there's consequences, then it brings about pain and, and hurt and isolation and um, loss of intimacy with, walk, with your walk with Christ. You know, there's a lot of people, they don't want to come to the light. They're, they're enjoying the darkness. And we have to understand as Christ followers, listen, as Christ followers, we, we have to understand that, that people are, are, are spiritually lost. They're so lost. They need Christ, but they're, they're enjoying their sin. You know, sin is, is, like, um, is like eating Chinese food. The more you eat, the more you want, right? The more you want more. You ever notice that? You eat Chinese food, and you're, eat, you're enjoying it, and you're like, oh, give me more, give me more, right? That's what sin is. The more you, you give into that temptation, the more you want it. Jesus is making the statement in the passage that we just read that people, they love the darkness. This is why they don't come to the light. John told us earlier that Jesus is a light. Look at John 1, 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, Christmas, the Christmas season is the best time of the year. Can I get an amen? Anybody love Christmas? I love Christmas. Christmas is the best, right? Christmas music, Christmas movies, right? You watch the same movies every year, and you laugh at the same jokes in the movie, right? I love it. I love the decorations. I love the food. I love the family. I love, I love it all. And I love that in the month of December, we just talk about Jesus, his entrance into the world. You know, one thing that we did this year, our son Joshua, he came up with this great idea. He said, you know what we should do? Instead of decorating the front of the house with lights, we should decorate the backyard with lights. And I started thinking, what a brilliant idea. Why do we go to all this work, giving people Christmas joy, decorating the front of our house, the lights which we never see for other people, for our neighbors? No, forget them. We're going to put lights in the backyard. We're just going to, we are going to enjoy the light ourselves. Game changer. So our house has no lights on the front. They're in the backyard. In the backyard. It's not about you. It's about us when it comes to Christmas, okay? So here's the beauty. Here's my point. That day, we're all out there getting all the lights together. And, uh, well, it wasn't quite a team effort. I'm not going to call anybody out. But uh, some kids didn't help out as much as other kids. Me and Candace, we marked out on the inheritance. Okay, check. These kids are going to get a little bit extra. Christmas 2023. No. And uh, I remember we got all the lights together. And then um, we, some of the kids had to work. So we had to wait for everyone to get home. And then it was like Christmas vacation, the movie, right? And it's like getting ready to plug it in, right, to see if it's all. And, man, we plugged that thing in. And that whole backyard was just lit up 
actually, all the neighbors' houses were lit up too. It was awesome, <laughs> completely awesome. Um, here's my point. My point is this. When Jesus stepped onto his stage, the stage that he created, earth, when he showed up, light flooded the darkness. And the light of Jesus will always flood the darkness. The light of Jesus, his light wants to transform your life. His light wants to heal you. His light wants to shine on you and and remind you of your purpose, which is to know him, the light of the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn because the world stands condemned already. If lost people knew this, if your oikos knew The love of God sent his only son to die for you because it was love. Because you stand condemned. This is why God sent his son. It was pure love. It would blow their mind. Blow their mind. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the deal. Good news, church family. You ready for this? If you know Christ, there's been a transfer. You've been transferred. You're no longer shackled to sin, a slave of of your sinful nature, a slave to the enemy. You've been transferred, placed into the kingdom of the beloved son. You're, You're a citizen of that kingdom. You're a citizen. You have rights and privileges, privileges, because Jesus is the king of that kingdom. You're part of that family. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's a high-ranking Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin. And the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus just abruptly ends. Did you notice that? In John 3, it just ends. Boom. It just stops. It's like a cliffhanger. Now, I'm here to tell you that uh, I'm not a super fan of cliffhangers. Like, I, I like to, you know, I like to... Um, I like to know the ending of the story, the ending of the movie. Just recently, me and my wife, we were watching a movie, and we invested two hours of our life into this movie. Two hours. And the movie just ended. And there was no meaning, no point. I look at my wife, and I'm like, we got to tell our kids uh, they need to watch this movie, right? We need to just, like, ruin two hours of their lives, right? And a total cliffhanger. This is what it appears like, total cliffhanger. What's going on, right? Did Nicodemus come to saving faith? Here's my guess. I think he did, and here's why. John 19, 38 to 40. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, so he's Christ's follower, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Between John 3 and John 19, something happened. Something happened in Nicodemus' life. Something happened. He went from being religious and being so confused to now he's assisting 
in the burial of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. I believe with all of my heart that Nicodemus got born again. I think his heart was radically transformed by the gospel and his life was forever changed. But there's something else that I want to show you. What do we know about Joseph of Arimathea? Well, the gospel writer Luke, who's a doctor, Gentile, he went out, interviewed scores of eyewitnesses to compile his account. He gives us a little insight into this man. I want, I want to read it for you. Luke 23, 50 to 52. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. Underline that, asterisk that, circle that, remember that. That's huge. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. What was that? The decision and the action to deliver Jesus to Pilate, right? For, for him to be crucified. Trumped up charges, false witnesses brought in throughout the night, right? He didn't agree to any of that. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, if you do some investigative work, which I've done, all four gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea. What do we know about him? Well, let me tell you. The gospel Matthew says that he's a disciple of Jesus. He was a rich man. So he had a lot of wealth. He, had a lot, he, he was very affluent. And he buried Jesus in his own new tomb. Hence, he was rich, right? Gospel of Mark, it says he was, res he was a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin. So he was very well known, right? He was well respected. Luke says he's a good and righteous man. He's looking for the kingdom of God. He didn't agree with the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn Christ. The Gospel of John says he's a disciple of Jesus, and he secretly asked for Jesus' body. Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Why would Joseph do that? Because I believe that Joseph believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Joseph, being a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, like top dog, religious guy, he risked his life, his reputation in the community. He put, he put everything on the line. And not only did he do that, he fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9. 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene, Isaiah gives us this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, speaking of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you remember John telling us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews? Nicodemus was also a part of the Sanhedrin. So here's what I'm saying. I think there's a good chance Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were friends. What I'm saying is there's an oikos relationship playing out right here. There's an oikos relationship. The oikos word, it's not yogurt. In, in the Greek, it means extended household. Like you see people going to friends and family, sharing the gospel with their oikos, right? They're going to their people, right? Your people are not my people. My people are not your people, right? And so the question is, God has dropped these people into our, into our worlds, circle of influence, relational world. Are we going to them? Are we building bridges? Are we investing? Are we sharing the gospel? Are we inviting them? 
maybe to a community group, maybe to an event, to, to a church service? Are we just building a relationship with them, loving them for who they are, even though you disagree spiritually with them? Here's another question. Who came to believe in Christ first? I mean, was it Nicodemus or was it Joseph of Arimathea? The Bible doesn't tell us that. But Luke tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. Did he tell Nicodemus that Jesus was the Messiah and that's why Nicodemus went and had a private conversation with him and he went to go see him? Or did Nicodemus, after speaking with Jesus, go tell Joseph that he had met the Messiah? At the end of the day, I don't really think it matters. I think what matters is somebody found somebody. Somebody told somebody about the somebody. Whether that was Nicodemus initiating the conversation or Joseph of Arimathea. But I think there's a pretty good chance one person impacted the other. We know this is true. The gospel spreads in relationships. We looked in in John chapter 1. Andrew, he goes and gets his brother, right? Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. That's what you do when you care for someone. When you care for someone who's lost, you go to them. You tell them about the gospel. And so now we're seeing this oikos relationship play out between Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea. Both, I believe, became Christ followers. Both were transformed by the good news Both were saved. And the question is, have you surrendered? Maybe you're like Nicodemus. Maybe you're stuck in John 3. You're religious, right? You're religious. You're curious, maybe. You're curious, but you're not like, you're not following Christ. You're curious. You're kind of on the peripheral, right? You're kind of on the edges. You're kind of peeking in. You're curious. You got questions. Listen, Christ doesn't want you stuck in John chapter 3. He wants you stuck in John chapter 9. He wants you to be a Christ follower of him. you got to surrender your life. you got to trust him. Like Nicodemus, I think Nicodemus came to the realization that he was just religious. And he needed a savior. And Jesus claimed to be the savior and the Messiah, the one the only one who could change his life. And Jesus is the only one that can change your life today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the story, this conversation that that your son, the Lord Jesus, had with Nicodemus. I pray that the truths that we've looked at this morning would move deep within our hearts. God, thank you for for Jesus being the remedy of our sin. Thank you, God, for, for you sending your son Jesus out of love. You loved us so much that you provided a way. God, that is just hard to fathom that you loved us that much. You made it possible for us to know you. Thank you, Lord, for your son Jesus who gave his life on that cross 
Thank you, Lord, that, that we can look to your son by faith and we can be healed spiritually in every way. Father, our only hope of salvation, the only remedy of our sin, the only hope that we have beyond the grave is found in you. Father God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Father, maybe someone here today is just peeking in. They're like Nicodemus. They're just, they got questions. They're curious. God, I pray by your spirit, you would show them. You would reveal to them who you are. You would show them that they're a sinner and that they need to turn from their sin and believe in your son Jesus and commit their life to follow him. God, I pray that you would work in someone's life today, that they would just simply open their heart by faith today and say yes to you and ask for you to change their lives, to be their savior, to forgive them, for this to be a new beginning, a new day for them. As they look to you today for the first time, right now, they would just cry out to you in their own heart. They would just, they would just acknowledge, God, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm broken. And I need you, Jesus. I need your grace. I believe that you're the son of God. That you died on that cross and you were buried and you rose again the third day. I believe that. Today, I commit my life to follow you. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Help us, Lord, to leave here today with a greater passion to live for you. A greater passion to share the good news with people around us that are so, so lost. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.